0: Sunday, February the 12th, 1939. Beneath the bright neon lights of London's West End, a man is running. His feet skip and skid along the slick, uneven cobbles. Though it's a chilly night, Paul Diaz is hot and flustered. He's no athlete. He makes his living as a saxophonist at the nearby Rainbow Club. But it's not only the running that has him sweating. It's the trauma of what he's just seen. As usual, Diaz has been to Dover Street to collect Georgina Hoffman, the beautiful star vocalist in his five piece band. Sometimes they share a quick gossip about work. On other occasions, he would have to wait a little while for Hoffman to finish her business with a gentleman caller. Only then would she be ready to accompany him to the club where she would transform into the Black Butterfly, the stage name by which she's well known. But not tonight. Tonight, when Diaz climbed the blue carpeted stairs in Hoffman's block of flats and reached her front door, he froze. Her door was wide open. He could smell her perfume, but calling out her name he got no response. In the next moment, to his horror, he understood why. Inside, there was blood everywhere, pools of it. Diaz now scurries past the upscale arcades and department stores of Piccadilly, drawing curious looks from the oblivious weekend crowds. People queuing up for Mickey Rooney's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn murmur as Diaz pushes through them. On the corner, a newsboy is hawking the evening edition. The pages are filled with the latest from the Spanish Civil War and the Japanese invasion of Hainan. Those horrors belong in the news. But the thought of his friend, A beautiful, living, breathing person, the Black Butterfly, being reduced to tomorrow's headline, is sickening, it's surreal, it's incomprehensible. Above Diaz, the fizzing, neon cavalcade of products, shows, and good times seems a million miles away, as if existing in a world where blood, pools, and broken butterflies cannot. Reaching St. James's Church now, Diaz makes the turning onto secluded Vine Street. There's no neon here, only the cold shoulders of building posteriors. It's a puzzling inclusion on the new board game Monopoly, a short, featureless back street, and it is home to little beyond the infamous police station, an imposing brick structure with bars on its windows and a stern-looking bobby on the door. Buried deep in the innards of the West End, The Vine Street lockup has seen it all, surrounded on all sides by sleaze, corruption, and violence. Tonight, though, is a quiet one. And inside, the desk sergeant is enjoying a rare moment to himself. That is, until Paul Diaz bursts through the doors. Ashen-faced and struggling for breath, Diaz shouts one word, murder. I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. The show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We will rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers, as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history.
1: spectrum business works with small businesses nationwide so we know that running your own business means doing it all marketing sales inventory customer service and more spectrum one for business helps you keep it all connected for just $49.99 a month get fast reliable internet advanced wi-fi with security shield and a free mobile line for one low price stay connected and do it all with spectrum one for business only $49.99 a month go to spectrum.com business to learn more Restrictions apply. Service is not available in all areas.
0: The brutal slaying of Georgina Hoffman, the Black Butterfly, is indeed an horrific crime. One that will pitch a legendary Scotland Yard inspector against a cold-blooded murderer. A murderer that will entice him into the depths of London's seedy underbelly. A murderer that leaves very little behind except for blood splatter and unanswered questions. A murderer that right now is still lurking in the shadows free to kill again. Londoners in 1939 are looking at rapidly rising crime rates. Violent offences are up notably from the year before. And with war in Europe once again looming on the horizon, this is only going to get worse. It's safe to say that Soho and the West End have seen its fair share of bloodshed through the ages. Its dark alleys, brothels, bars and clubs have long drawn both the unsavory and the glamorous elements of the city into its foul depths. But when a well-liked young woman is slaughtered in her own home, left naked, the door wide open for anyone to see, well, that's not just another crime. Perhaps this is why, when Paul Diaz gives a brief account of the horror he has just discovered on Dover Street, the desk sergeant knows immediately he needs a heavy hitter to step up. Enter Met legend Robert Fabian, aka Fabian of the Yard. Robert Honey Fabian is a short, wiry man who, as his middle name suggests, is disarmingly sweet-natured. He is in possession of a razor-sharp intellect and an inquiring mind, a man who excels at solving puzzles, but Fabian is no polite pencil pusher, either. The crook in the bridge of his nose speaking to some past scrap. And you don't get to his position without getting your hands dirty. Despite his small stature, he cuts an impressive figure, always dressed in a pinstripe suit and gleaming leather shoes. Bob Fabian joined the police force almost two decades ago, working his way up from uniformed constable. He will go on to be a household name in the years to come famed for foiling insidious criminal plots and collaring elusive villains. He'll become known by most as Fabian of the Yard. But on the night of Sunday, the 12th of February, 1939, he is 38 years of age, recently promoted to detective inspector and on the cusp of a glittering career. And it is Fabian who is called by the desk sergeant to meet the shaken saxophonist, Paul Diaz. Fabian knows only the basics when he meets Diaz That the man has just found his friend and colleague Georgina Hoffman Dead in her flat on Dover Street Diaz swears he touched nothing Upon seeing the body He came straight here Fabian begins by asking him If Hoffman had any enemies or disagreements Does he remember seeing her lately With anyone suspicious Any new acquaintances Still presumably in shock Diaz takes a moment trying to organize his thoughts. He can think of only one, a man. Last night or the night before, they were in the Rainbow Club together as usual. At some point during the night, this unknown stranger had sent her a drink. He lost sight of her, so they may have even interacted briefly. If Diaz could point to anything concretely suspicious about this man, that's lost to time. What is certain, is that as Fabian leaves Vine Street, Nick, for Dover Street, he doesn't have a lot to go on. A man watching Hoffman in the Rainbow Club who sent her a drink. At 10.30pm, Fabian reaches Dover Street and enters Hoffman's flat. The officer outside tells him that he has already conducted a cursory inspection of the place and the killer did not leave the murder weapon behind. Nothing seems to be missing, even the victim's money was left untouched in the flat. Inside, Fabian finds the black butterfly by the front door, stock still, laying in a pool of her own blood. It's a chilling scene. She's naked, her body riven with stab wounds, her false teeth smashed in, her whiskey-colored eyes still open, are dulled in death. Fabian looks around, there's blood everywhere, clashing perversely with the divan bed, the green brocade couch, the little delicate ornaments dotted around the room. Near her body, Hoffman's blouse and bra are laying on the floor, both sliced open with an evidently sharp knife. On the bed, he finds her undervest, also sliced open, along with various other items of clothing, each garment seemingly ripped from her body. And on the floor, Fabian now spots three broken teeth, like so many little fragments of porcelain. The notable smearing through the blood puddles tells him the killer has dragged Hoffman's body around. Perhaps initially he wanted to dispose of it in order to destroy evidence, but then, realising the difficulty of such a task, simply dropped her where she lay. Fabian wonders. Was this frenzied attack an impulsive crime of passion? A moment of madness by a first-time killer? Perhaps when the enormity of what he had just done hit him He fled the flat in a remorseful panic. Did that explain why he hadn't even bothered to close the door? Or was there a deeper, darker fury behind the violence? Something personal? Something premeditated? After all, it was possible the killer was well known to Hoffman and had brought a knife with him in the first place. So, who is this man? A friend? An admirer? Or something else? If Fabian can't fathom the killer quickly, he must understand his victim. So then, who was Georgina Hoffman? It's an elegant living space, full of urbane touches and feminine knick-knacks. Clearly her living as the black butterfly afforded her some measure of finery. On the shelf, little trinkets and cuddly toys stand innocently as silent witnesses to her demise. Yet in her dressing table he discovers the first hints of a hidden life. Fabian finds naked photographs and items pertaining to flagellation, lists of contacts, or perhaps customers. Had Hoffman been involved in sex work, then it stands to reason her killer may be found amongst her clientele. At any rate, sex, murder, and a raven-haired beauty meeting her grisly end in London's West End Fabian knows these elements will attract the crime reporters to his case like flies to honey. But his immediate concern is giving Hoffman some justice rather than providing the papers with an ending. Fabian begins the process of detection, but obvious clues are few and far between. On Hoffman's table, he sees money, a silver cigarette case, and an uncashed paycheck from the Rainbow Club which, he notices with passing interest, is double his own. He can shelve the idea of a murder for money or a bungled robbery for the time being then. But searching about the apartment, despite the carnage, there's frustratingly little to go on. He can't yet get a sense of the truth or what he likes to call the light, that thread which will eventually lead him through the darkness towards his suspect. But it's not all guts and intuition. He also has science to call on. And soon enough, the fingerprint experts arrive, along with the Scotland Yard photographer. Fabian steps outside to let them work, and as the officer posted on the door, go fetch the landlord. A few minutes later, he appears. The man isn't thrilled to be talking to Vine Street Police, But then, West End folk rarely are. Fabian knows the drill well. As the glassy pops of the camera resound inside the flat, he puts the man at ease and begins his questioning. The landlord says he had rented Hoffman the flat a fortnight ago, despite knowing she'd be receiving gentleman callers. So that confirms the Black Butterfly's secondary occupation. Fabian asks if he'd overheard any big rows or seen anything strange or out of place. The sullen-looking landlord simply shrugs. But perhaps, wanting to offer something under the glare of Fabian's piercing blue eyes, he tentatively mentions that two days ago, he had knocked on her door to collect his due, but someone else had answered. It was a man, he says. When I asked him when Georgina would be back, he just said, later. Intrigued, Fabian wants a description. The landlord shrugs. He was young. Early twenties, I would say. Fabian thanks him and goes back inside the flat. The photos are all done, but the fingerprint experts have found nothing in their grey, powdery alchemy. They leave, and Fabian is about to follow them out when something catches his eye. A shiny glint in the wicker wastebasket. He reaches down and plucks out a balled-up piece of black foil. Spreading it open, he recognizes it as the wrapper from the neck of a bottle of gin. And yet, checking again, there are no bottles of gin in the flat. Hello, hello, hello. Had the killer come bearing gifts? Did he think if he won Hoffman's trust with gin, he could more easily quench his own bloody thirst? Fabian now recalls what Diaz said. I saw a man watching her. He sent her a drink. Hi listeners, John Hopkins here. We hope you enjoy this trailer for Noises' new show, Detectives Don't Sleep. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, with new episodes airing every Tuesday. What makes a great detective? If you arrived at a crime scene, Would you have what it takes to
1: crack the case wide open? Would you spot the vital clue that everyone else has missed? Could you unravel the suspect's perfect alibi? And could you confront a murderer? Introducing Detectives Don't Sleep, the new whodunit podcast from Noiser. Each week, we'll take you beyond the police tape to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases you'll be right there solving a murder on the beaches of the Bahamas, busting neo-Nazi art dealers in the back streets of Europe and unmasking con men in Beverly Hills. These detectives, they all have one thing in common. They can never truly rest until they've closed the case. Listen to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's already close to midnight when Fabian leaves Hoffman's flat. But even on a Sunday, Soho is in full swing. Fabian makes his way to the Rainbow Club, where Hoffman was billed as the Black Butterfly. Inside, it's a chic uptown affair. Rainbow lights and chromium stools. The band, a replacement band, is getting ready up on the stage. The show must go on. It could be any normal night at the club, except for the palpable collective tension among the staff and customers as police officers go from table to table, making their inquiries, jotting down answers. Fabian goes straight to the bar, but not for a tipple. He asks if the bartender recalls the man who sent Hoffman a drink one or two nights ago, possibly in his early 20s, possibly ordering gin. It's a long shot, and Fabian knows it. The barman shrugs, lots of people buy drinks for pretty girls here. Fabian asks the barman to bring him every bottle of gin available. He compares each one in turn to the foil found in the flat, but nothing matches. Fabian concludes that if it was the killer sent Hoffman a drink here, he got his bottle of gin elsewhere. Did that mean some sort of date had been arranged that night? Diaz did mention Hoffman might have talked briefly with a man after he sent her the drink. At that moment, the club owner takes Fabian to one side to politely complain. After all, a police inspector on the trail of a murderer is liable to ruin his trade. Fabian smiles compassionately, but says, these things take the time they take. Now he asks the club owner about Georgina Hoffman, but the man shakes his head. I didn't know much about her. She just sang with my musicians. Fabian is about to press for more when the owner points across the room. But that's her sister over there now, I think, at the bar. Through the rainbowed lights, undulating with smoke and saxophone music, Fabian now sees a spectre. Across the room, the young lady sits alone the same whisky eyes, the same country night black hair. It's as if Hoffman had simply picked herself up from that bloody floor, washed herself off and gone to work like any other evening. Fabian approaches the young woman and takes a seat across from her. Judging by her face, she's already been given the bad news and it has broken her entirely. Gently, Fabian explains he needs to ask some questions and she agrees. He starts by asking if she had seen Hoffman talking with anyone here. Men? The sister gives a lost shrug, a response that is becoming commonplace. She simply says, Georgina is the black butterfly. Lots of men talk to her. Now Fabian goes through Hoffman's routine. How did she usually spend her weekends? What does the sister know about her circle of friends? On the day of her death, Did Hoffman have any appointments or dates? The sister begins to talk. And with each new name she mentions, Fabian gives his officers a nod. He doesn't have to spell out that he wants every single one tracked down and eliminated. By 5 a.m. they've moved over to Vine Street Police Station. In the CID room, the sister is warming herself by the stove, exhausted. Fabian has questioned the life out of her. One by one, the officers who'd gone out to follow up on the names she's given all come back, shaking their heads. Every friend and associate the sister could think of is in possession of a solid alibi. But Fabian hasn't run out of questions for her yet. He switches tack. He didn't see much in the way of pots and pans in Hoffman's flat. Was she much of a cook? The sister shakes her head. Georgina took all her meals out. Where did she take her breakfasts? Again, the sister shakes her head. She never touched breakfast. Lunch was her breakfast. Fabian taps the notepad in front of her. By now, the sister doesn't need it spelled out for her either. With a sigh, she wearily starts writing down the names of cafes and restaurants. When her list is complete, Fabian takes it to the reference shelves. And there, he makes an intriguing discovery. Of all the places Hoffman took her meals, only one holds a license to stock alcoholic spirits. The Casa Roja, very close to Dover Street. Fabian looks at the little ball of foil from the gin bottle in his hand. It's not much of a lead, but you never know. Fabian gets up and grabs his coat no stone can be left unturned. The sun is rising and London is whirring back into life, gearing up for the new week. Fabian, however, is exhausted and his feet are aching. He senses a break in the case is close if he can just make the right move. He knows better than anyone the best chance of catching a criminal is in the hours after the crime has been committed, before alibis can be created or evidence can be disposed of he pushes on. The Casa Roja is only a few minutes' walk away from the station. It's early, but in a stroke of luck, it turns out the proprietor is there as he lives on the premises. Fabian begins to explain the situation and describe Hoffman, but the owner nods and offers him a chair. He knows her and has already heard of what has happened to her. The word is out. Fabian asks when he'd last seen Hoffman. Recently, he replies. She ordered tomato juice, as I recall. Not gin, Fabian presses. No, the owner replies. Though she was with a man who wanted gin. He ordered a bottle and then they left. D.I. Robert Fabian sits back in his chair and exhales slowly, satisfaction filling him as he now begins to see the light at last. He asks to be shown which types of gin are stocked. Sure enough, the owner returns with a bottle, its neck wrapped in black foil, identical to the one found in Hoffman's flat. This man she was with who ordered this gin, Fabian says. Was he young, early twenties? The owner nods. Now that I think of it, The chap was rather odd. Odd, Fabian replies, latching onto the phrase, his hope rising. Yes, he had some kind of speech defect. Walking back to Vine Street, Fabian senses he is close to this shadowy man. He can feel him, but he cannot see him. As always, Fabian seeks the light, but as yet there is only a silhouette, black as the butterfly's hair, black as the foil on the neck of the bottle. He knows there is a man, but who is he? So far, Fabian can only fill in the blanks with vague details. Then again, vague details can tell him a lot. The man was young, perhaps unsure of his place in society. Did he seek to assert himself with women? Maybe Hoffman denied him that. Was that enough to make him slip out the knife from his pocket. But what of the drinks? At the Rainbow Club, Hoffman accepted the one he sent to her. Surrounded by her band members and friends, she would have felt safe there. But at the Casa Roja, Hoffman drank only tomato juice. Was it the case that she was treating this man as simply business? Or did she want to keep her wits about her? Perhaps already wary of him she invited him back to her flat against her better judgment. And once there, she could have changed her mind. Was rejection what had triggered him to unleash his wild fury upon her? Most intriguing of all, though, is what the restaurant owner has just told him. The man had a speech impediment. Taken in isolation, it might not count for much as a clue. But then again, these streets, these establishments, are mainly populated by locals, regular faces. How many punters around the West End have speech impediments? Dozens? A hundred? Somebody knows this man. And soon enough, so will Inspector Fabian. Back at Vine Street CID, Hoffman's sister is almost beside herself with fatigue. She asked if this can all wait until tomorrow. Miss, Fabian replies, with a polite, if resolute, smile, it is tomorrow and your sister's murderer must be found. Again, Fabian wants to talk to the men who made eyes at Georgina Hoffman, but he now tells his sister about his latest discovery. A young man with a speech impediment had taken Hoffman to the Casa Roja for lunch and ordered a bottle of gin. At this, the sister flinches a speech impediment, you say. Fabian has been doing this for a long time. He recognizes the sudden pallor in her face. A truth was dawning on her. The other night at the Rainbow Club, she adds, I saw my sister talking to a man. I didn't like him. Not one bit. He had a, what would you call it? Cleft palate. Fabian immediately understands the way forward in this investigation, and so he beckons for hoffman's sister to follow him i need you to come with me miss together they go to the records office in these bulging dossiers the details and particulars of practically every crook in the land are stored across the last 20 years fabian has been responsible for adding his fair share of names to these shelves he even took the unusual step of serving in the records office staff himself some years before precisely so that he would better know the rogues and villains of the West End when he met them. But at this moment, he is concerned with only one file. File 410. He sits down with Hoffman's sister and splays it open. Inside, there are some 800 photographs of offenders and suspicious characters. And every single one of them shows men with facial scars or congenital defects, such as a cleft lip. The sister promptly begins to thumb through the pages, her malt brown eyes passing over each face. Fabian waits patiently, rolling the balled-up foil around the palm of his hand. He can't remember the last time he slept, the hours all blurring together like piccadilly neon. Suddenly, Hoffman's sister lets out a squeak. With a trembling finger, she taps a photograph. Fabian looks down at it and sees a young man. A young man with a cleft palate, with a prior conviction for stabbing a girlfriend. Fabian thanks Hoffman's sister and excuses her. She stands up and promptly faints.
1: Is it time to change your approach and switch to Air Supra Albuterol Budesonide? Now you can virtually connect with a doctor to discuss your options and see if it's time to make a change. If appropriate, you may even be able to get a prescription for Air Supra the same day. Talk to a doctor today and see if Air Supra is right for you. Visit AirSupraConnect.com to connect with a provider.
0: Jim Mahoney is 23 years old and lives in Brixton. He makes his living as an engineer's steward on board ships. A few afternoons back, he had held in his hands the first five pound note of his life. Money won on a bet. Standing in his local pub, he felt the crinkly fiver between his fingers, then snapped it taut, the sound of victory. After all, five pounds was almost double his weekly salary. His friends teased him, get the beers in then, but Mahoney had other ideas. He wasn't gonna waste it on the usual. No, this called for some class, a small taste of the high life. By that evening, he was sitting in a West End nightclub, gazing longingly at the young woman on stage. Through the opalescent smoke and music, her voice stirred in him the seductive possibilities of a world where he could live the high life a beautiful girl on his arm, a world where he wasn't just Jim with the cleft palate. He wanted to be Mr. Arthur James Mahoney. He wanted to be respected. He wanted to be desired. But if Lady Luck was with him tonight, as the fiver in his pocket hinted, why not dream? Mahoney called the barman over and asked who the beautiful singer was. That's the black butterfly, sir. Mahoney smiled. The black butterfly? Of course she was. Five aloft, he told the barman to send her a drink. And by the end of the night, Mahoney had miraculously secured a date with her. At first, he was walking on air in Georgina Hoffman's company. He liked being seen with her and who was to say if there wouldn't be more than company? But his mood soured when he realized the black butterfly didn't flutter into a man's life for free. Across the table at the Casa Roja, she dispassionately sipped her tomato juice and reminded him not to waste all his wages at once. How did she know a meal at a nice place would eat into his wages, or anything about him for that matter? Sensing she had disappointed him, Hoffman shrugged. You can accompany me home if you like. Mahoney knew of course that by accompany, she really meant he could pay for a taxi, just as he had paid for her cigarettes and drinks. Still quietly outraged, he called for the bill and asked for a bottle of gin for the way out. On the morning of February the 13th, flanked by uniformed officers, Fabian knocks on an unremarkable door on an unremarkable Brixton street. As he waits for it to open, he feels uneasy. He's almost certain he has his man. But knowing someone is a murderer and proving it are two very different things. Fabian has no smoking gun here. In fact, he has very little on Jim Mahoney except for one or two people that have seen him talking to Hoffman. In her line of work, that's, well, unremarkable. All Fabian has to even suggest Mahoney had even set foot in Georgina Hoffman's apartment is a balled-up piece of foil in his pocket. Fabian wonders now, is it a mistake to knock for Mahoney this early in his investigation? He's well beyond exhausted. Have his instincts failed him? Suddenly, a young man answers, shaving soap on his face the smell of cooking breakfast wafting over his shoulder. Mr. Arthur James Mahoney, Fabian asks. The young man nods. I'm Bob Fabian. Fabian of the yard, he says, with his signature smile. Mahoney sees the faces of the large coppers behind the respectful inspector. They are very much not smiling. A fateful moment of silence passes between them. Mahoney suddenly takes a long, shuddering breath. The knife, he states simply, is upstairs. Fabian nods calmly, as if this confession was inevitable. Privately, he can scarcely believe his good luck. Back at Vine Streets, Mahoney recounts the whole affair. After feeling like he'd been taken for a ride by Hoffman, he snapped. The argument became heated. Mahoney saw red. In his rage in mind, the black butterfly became a mocking symbol of a world to which he simply could not gain entry. Every scornful word, every breath of hers were reminders of the life he would never live. That's when he took out his workman's clasp knife. Fabian listens, holding that very knife in his hand now, running his forefinger across the lip of the blade that had taken the life of Georgina Hoffman. This was not the first killer that had spun a woe is me tale. Fabian had heard many men here confess to their temper getting the better of them, or their envy, but usually not so earnestly. Fabian might have wondered whether Mahoney was mentally altogether, but from what he says, the young man certainly understood his actions. The fiver felt good in Mahoney's hand, and he had wasted it. Wasted it on a girl, a girl that did not want him, a girl that he could not afford. That loss, and all the other losses in Jim Mahoney's short existence, who was going to pay for them. At that moment, his clasp knife whispered the answer. As Mahoney signs his confession, Fabian heads home for some much-needed sleep. He's looked for the light from the minute Diaz stumbled in crying murder. Now the full picture is clear before him, and it is a sorry little picture at that. On March the 6th, not even a month later, Arthur James Mahoney is convicted of the murder of Georgina Hoffman. He is sentenced to death. Though the full account is not available to us today, The justice at the Old Bailey must have had grounds to also question the mental state of the convict. Mahoney's sentence was promptly overturned and he was instead confined to Broadmoor Lunatic Asylum as it was then known. He died on the 2nd of July, 1940, just a few weeks shy of the commencement of the London Blitz. For his part, Fabian will go on to become a legend in London law enforcement. Although hardly a complex criminal conspiracy, The case of the black butterfly characterized his exemplary attitude his tireless work his endless night pounding the pavements of the west end trusting and following his well-honed instincts would all become signatures of the super sleuth in the years to come by the time of his retirement he had reached the rank of detective superintendent and become a household name but for all his successes Fabian never forgot the senseless slaying of Georgina Hoffman even if the world around him did. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's 1946. In the genteel countryside on the outskirts of London, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Prince Edward and Wallis Simpson are holidaying with friends at Ednham Lodge. The royal visit alone is enough to cause a press frenzy, but when the Duchess's collection of priceless jewels is stolen in broad daylight, the ensuing furor is something else altogether. Naturally, Scotland Yard is brought in to investigate such a high-profile, audacious theft. They soon have their sights set on the most successful jewel thief of his generation, an enigmatic and elusive character known only as Johnny the Gent. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parkcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Guarro for Parkcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Nicholas Obregon. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory Macaulay.